The Guardian. Here on Science Weekly, we're continuing to follow the COVID-19 outbreak and explore some of the biggest questions to come out of it, including some from you, our listeners. If you have any, head over to our form that we've set up at theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions, all one word. In today's episode, we'll be exploring something that Susie in Cairo asked. What happens when the lockdowns are lifted? So there is a risk that if you ease off too much, when your infections are still at a very high level, essentially you're just going to maintain infections at that high level. So, so you might slow the growth of the epidemic, but you're not necessarily going to see the continued decline that you'd expect with the lockdown. I'm Hannah Devlin, and welcome to Science Weekly. Um, questions that people are looking at, if that sounds all right. Um, first of all, though, could we get you to give your introduce yourself with your um, your name and your title and affiliation? Yeah, uh, I'm Adam Kaczarski. I'm an associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. As we all know, um, as the coronavirus outbreak has occurred, different countries have gone into lockdown. And the first place that this happened was in China. Um, could you just tell us a bit about what that involves and what kind of effective measures have been taken, maybe starting with China? Um, yes. Yeah, so in late January, we saw uh, really over quite a short period of time, a lot of extensive measures um, put in place. So it was a combination of things like travel restrictions on things like physical distancing uh, in Wuhan, really extensive lockdown to the point where, where most people were confined to their houses and only able to leave very intermittently to get essentials like food. Um, and then more widely in China, there was extensive measures, but not quite necessarily to the same level. Those have really been in place in, in Wuhan since then. And we've now got this question, you know, these people in Wuhan and some other places in China have have now been under these restrictions for quite a considerable period of time. And China's starting to look at lifting these restrictions. In a recent paper in The Lancet, you looked quite specifically at the timing around this in China and the different scenarios that could take place if you lifted restrictions a few weeks ago compared to in April. Um, Could you just talk us through a little bit about what you found and how big a difference those few weeks made and when you lifted the restrictions? Yes. Um, So we looked at a number of different scenarios from uh, a baseline of if there had been no lockdown to one that was relatively short to things that were relaxed in in March or in April in terms of the, the extent of the control measures. We found it made it made a really big difference. I mean, we were just focusing very much on that that first wave, and then as transmission might rise subsequently. So we didn't look too far in the long term. But certainly, if it was only a very short intervention of a couple of weeks, uh, you'd very quickly expect a rise in uh, in the outbreak again. And that's in part because when a lockdown goes in, you often have a lot of infection in the population already. Um, And so it takes time for those people to recover and then subsequent transmission that may have happened for those people to recover as well. So if you have a, say, a two-week lockdown, when you lift it, you've already still got a lot of infection in the population that can can cause another outbreak. We estimated that if that phasing instead, for example, happened in, in, say, March, then it's likely that 
you might see some transmission start to take off again, potentially in, in May and June, assuming that you're phasing back to everyone just having normal routine. Whereas if the, the staggered release of interventions was uh, into April, which is what we're seeing, then even if it did uh, start to go back to, to a more normal lifestyle, then because transmission is at that low level, it would probably take until the summer before we started seeing a, a growth in cases substantially again. Looking at places that are a bit further behind China and Wuhan in terms of the, the curve that they're following, um, places like the UK or also Italy, for example, in some of these countries there's been talk of things slowing down, leveling off of the number of cases. I know there's been talk of green shoots in the UK. I'm not sure whether that's been borne out in the figures we've seen over the past few days, but how should that feed into the decision of whether it's time to lift the lockdown? And do you have to kind of go through that peak and get all the way down, back down to very low figures before you even think about lifting restrictions? Or can you start thinking about what the timing might look like as soon as things start levelling off? I think it's definitely important to think about timings. Um, but there is a risk that if you ease off too much, when your infections are still at a very high level, essentially, you're just going to maintain infections at that high level. So, so you might slow the growth of the epidemic, but you're not necessarily going to see the continued decline that you'd expect with the lockdown. Um, some work done by uh, some of my colleagues uh, last week, so just after the lockdown went in, they did um, some social behaviour surveys of a range of age groups and geographic locations in the UK. And they found that there was about 70% reduction in social contacts uh, just after lockdown went in the UK, which, if that was representative of what's happening across the population, would suggest that we would be seeing a decline in transmission currently. Um, but of course, this does take time to appear in the data, because if you have less transmission today, that means less people may be being exposed, but it would be another week maybe before they would be showing up as cases, and then maybe another week before they might be showing up in hospitals. So really, you get this this quite long lag in terms of the effects. And even if you look at the data, for example, from Wuhan, it was about a month after those lockdowns went in that you saw uh, the number of deaths peak and start to decline. So it's really this, this kind of long effect that you see afterwards. And is there any benefit of getting it really low before you start lifting restrictions? Because if not everyone's had it, presumably... And if you've not eradicated the virus, presumably it's still going to be around and things are going to rebound at some point. So is there any point in going all the way down to zero or close to there before allowing things to come back up? Or or would it be okay to just kind of keep a lid on it enough that you've got the hospital capacity and keep it sort of simmering along at a manageable level? It's, it's a really difficult trade-off. And we've looked at um, a whole number of different scenarios, as have Imperial and, and other groups. And you can, in some scenarios, have the situation where you would in, introduce these more uh, extensive measures for, say, um, uh, a few weeks, a month maybe, and then lift them, maintain some background measures, have some gradual increase in transmission again, and then introduce and, and get this, this low-level transmission that doesn't overwhelm your healthcare. I mean, I think there is an advantage to having much lower numbers is in that it does open up avenues. Um, for example, if we can get uh, innovation in testing and contact tracing, um, potentially that would uh, help our ability to, to, to maintain that at low levels. And I think 
it's worth noting that countries like Singapore that have been doing a very good job at that um, have more recently had to introduce more stringent social distancing and, and workplace closures and that sort of thing. So it's not guaranteed that we could just lift the strategy that other countries have done um, effectively. But I think there are certainly trade-offs in the options available depending on how high your case numbers are. Testing is obviously something that's had a huge amount of attention and different countries have had very different strategies. But in terms of how testing is useful for when you're coming out of a lockdown, what is it that you'd like to see or, you know, what's the kind of ideal scenario? The optimistic scenario is one where we can have control measures that are more focused on people most at risk because uh, the lockdown type measures essentially is applied to the whole population because it's in a situation where we don't uh, have a a good idea of exactly where all the cases are. We have a lot of infection. And so we have to do that large scale reduction in transmission. If you're at lower, lower numbers, and this is, this is what the UK was doing in, uh, in January and February that, that as cases were identified, tracing their contacts and testing those people too, and trying to identify everyone who's at risk. But the features of of coronavirus make it very hard to do that effectively. So essentially, once you start missing a few people or having cases that are going undetected, it becomes much harder to do that. And that's what countries like Singapore are are now finding um, as well. And so I think the hope is that we can see some innovation. There's a lot of uh, some nice ideas and, and proposals coming out for how technological developments so things like phone apps that are being trialed in places like Germany and Singapore to to automatically notify people at risk but then of course it needs to be combined with with kind of easy rapid uh, at scale testing so i think i think there's a number of, of logistical challenges there but i think having those there's more targeted measures rather than widespread interventions is probably the best case uh, we're looking at over the coming months and then i wanted to ask about antibody testing and, and this idea that um you might be able to Um, do a survey of your population and see who's had the virus and then give them some kind of immunity certificate to say you've got a free pass now to go back out again what are your thoughts on that I yeah I think I think those tests are certainly going to give us a good idea of at the population level how many people have been exposed Um, I'd be a little bit cautious about how easy and, and reliable they will be to interpret at the individual level. Um, we've worked a lot on, on these kind of antibody uh, tests for other um, pathogens over the years for things like flu and Zika and a whole, whole bunch of other um, viruses. And when you get down to the individual level, you can get more uncertainty, um, particularly if only a small proportion of your population have been exposed to this virus. Um, even if you have an assay which uh, you know generally gives uh, a pretty high level of correct results if you have a lot of people in your population who haven't been exposed then those very small errors you know may kind of accumulate i think i am cautious about this idea that we have a test that can give you total certainty that you've got immunity to this Um, but i think it can be a very useful indicator of where we are in the outbreak and particularly you know which areas may have seen overall more impact than others now, I just wanted to kind of throw things a bit further forward. Um, everything we've been talking about so far has been a sort of semi-release from lockdown, but then probably having to, you know, have still quite a lot of controls in place and not have a full return to normal life. The world's going to be a different place after coronavirus in many ways. But is there, what's the final endpoint for this? When do we sort of finally get fully out of lockdown? So I suppose the the 
the I guess the final potential endpoint would be where the the population can have um, sufficient immunity to stop transmission. So the the ideal scenario would be a vaccine, um, and I mean it's unlikely that we'd see anything along those lines for at least a year, 18 months at earliest. Um, but in that kind of situation where we could just resume um, a, a normal routine, I think that would be the, the most clear endpoint. But I think it, if we can get better uh, methods for, for targeting of trans, transmission and identifying pe- people at risk and, and contacts, then I think with, with enough innovation in terms of doing it at scale and keeping it reliable enough to stop transmission, uh, we could just make that a part of our, our lifestyle change. There are infections that do shape our behaviour. If you look at things like STIs, you know, that is is a kind of part of life that, that kind of, you know, there is an awareness and and people you know, have aspects of their behaviour and testing and this kind of thing to accommodate the existence of that infection in their lives. I think we may well see something like this, but certainly over the next year or two, uh, it, it's hopeful that we can get a lot of these normal elements of our routines back, but we probably will just have these these kind of systematic considerations about testing and who's at risk um, that, that will be there in the background. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Adam, for coming on. Um, and yeah, um, take care. All right. Thank you. Thanks to Adam Kaczarski this week. Adam has a new book called Contagion, written before the current pandemic, that we will link to in the episode's description on the Guardian website. We also want to say thank you for your support as listeners. In times like this, trusted news is more important than ever. And here at The Guardian, we are 100% committed to accurate and reliable news. But in order to help us do that, we need your support. To find out more, please go to theguardian.com forward slash support podcasts all one word and please continue to send in your questions as well via the form at theguardian.com forward slash covid19 questions look after yourselves and we'll see you soon great podcasts from The Guardian. Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.